Welcome to Tiber's Watchcast, an audio companion to the Substack movie newsletter Tiber's Watchlist at tiberswatchlist.substack.com. I'm a film critic and author with four decades of experience, and the Watchcast is an excuse to invite friends and colleagues over to talk about movies and genres and TV shows and music and weird pop culture stuff. So today my guest again is Meredith Goldstein, and we are still going on about romantic comedies. It's the second of our four conversations about archetypal romantic comedies. Some of them are our favorite. Some of them are our favorite to be very silly about. And some of them are uh, classics, like the one we're going to be talking about today. Uh, I Know Where I'm Going, the wonderful 1945 Michael Powell film. Uh, and Meredith, you had not seen this before, uh, what, yesterday? Yeah, I really had not seen this. And I'm so glad you asked me to see this. And I, it... It just brought up so many other titles that, you know, films that might have influenced. I, I couldn't help but think about how uncomfortable I was watching The Lighthouse and yet how I thought it was a little bit of a romance <laughs> only because I see anything as Robert Pattinson, you know, with Robert Pattinson as a romance in my head. But um, any time that the waves were crashing, you know, as uh, against the, the shore as two people were, you know, stranded, I was like, well, that's not what The Lighthouse is going for. But why is this reminding me of that? I had not made that connection before. All we needed was a, was a homicidal seagull. Exactly. Well, and there are a few tight shots of like birds that look upset, and both movies have that in common too. But one is obviously clearly a romance more than the other. And I, I mean, what a delightful film to watch. I mean, it, it's a magical film. Um, if for those of you who are listening who have not seen this movie, it is really a remarkable film, and to me, it's almost like the blueprint for a lot of modern romantic comedies, although it has a really special mystical magic uh, all of its own, in part because of where it's set. It's set on an island in the Hebrides in Scotland, the Isle of Mull, and it is, it's about a London girl who is very headstrong, and as the title says, she knows where she's going and has all of her life, played by the wonderful Wendy Hiller. Uh, who was known back then for playing um, the original Eliza Doolittle in um, Pygmalion for Shaw. And she is all set to marry a rich older man who has rented the Isle of Mull from the, the Laird of Killarney, who is, we don't know who he is for a while. And uh, she takes a train to this isle and, or to the the place where she's supposed to catch a ferry to the Isle. Uh, but circumstances intervene and keep her from, for the longest time, crossing over to the island. It's just there, tantalizing out of reach. There's fog, there's gales, there's all sorts of things. And while she is stuck on the mainland, well, she does meet the true Laird of Killarney, um, who's played by Roger Livesey. And she meets the other locals, and she becomes slowly, slowly, seduced by, again, the magic of this wild place and the people there, um, and just fights it all almost to the end of the movie, just fights it as hard as she can because she's going to marry that rich man. And it's sort of implied, it's a 1945 movie. It was made, actually, it was made in the spring of 1944. Um, I think D-Day happened while they were filming. So clearly the tide was turning. Clearly the end of the war was starting to be in sight. Um, and there is that feeling that uh, 
there's something over the horizon to work for. And there's also the implication that the guy she's marrying might be a war profiteer, might be somebody who's made his millions um, selling chemicals uh, you know, for, to, for the war industry. Um, so there's a bit of a very subliminal political commentary going on there. Um, but tell me what you thought of this. Well, I mean, I see this through two different lenses, right? One is as somebody who just loves movies, and the other is an advice columnist who thinks a lot about romance. And Combining that, I think a lot about like marriage being portrayed as a trap, right? And and there was something really interesting to me about a movie where a character is really trapped by weather in a place. Hmm. And but what where what is the real trap, right? Like where is the real place she might get stuck? So you're rooting for her to not be able to leave that island because that's where you really get stuck is off the island, right? And so I think just right. even thinking about it as a relationship story about, you know, she's desperate to get to the marriage she thinks is, you know, the right one. And of course, we know, you know, that perhaps she shouldn't leave it all. <laughs> so, you know, I, I also think, you know, you talk about the actual forces here of fog and and um, thinking about all of the movies where people are stranded, and love happens and or or love doesn't happen and mm-hmm. uh, you know i think one of the first things i i thought of was forces of nature which is not a, what which is a ben, you know the ben affleck um sandra bullock movie <laughs> forces of nature which i know is not what you think of when you think of of what classic cinema inspires but actually i've got a real soft spot for that movie and there's a you lot of please make the please okay, make the well connection. i mean there's a lot of like you know it's If you go back and watch Forces of Nature, and now I can't remember who directed it, but it is, you know, you're seemingly like, oh, well, of course, Ben Affleck and Sandra Bullock were at one point in a movie together, but you'd probably forget which one. And But it's a little (laughs) magical. It's a little, these two people can cannot get to where they need to be, in particular, Ben Affleck, you know? And it was was directed by Bronwyn Hughes. You know, it's, it's a movie about like, should I take the path I'm supposed to be on or not? And it plays with that idea mm-hmm. of, um, in sort of an opposite way of this diversion seems like perhaps the right place to be. And Maura Tierney is also in it. And it and it's, but there's a lot of weather. There's a lot of weather that seems like, you know, a higher power intervening in a romance. And so I think that that, right. you know, the idea that especially in, in a modern day, although I don't know if Uber was created quite yet when Forces of Nature came out, but the idea that weather could a wind could stop you from getting to your own wedding. I mean, it just doesn't, you know, unless you're on Nantucket or something, it doesn't make sense. And yet it, and yet it did. So, you know, I thought about that just in terms of how do we make people stuck where they are in a world like today (laughs) so that romance can blossom or not. But, you know, listen, that this is the, the, the longest jump from this movie to uh, forces of nature, but it's a, it's a weather love movie. But not at all. Not at all. This is this goes to my point. I think that this movie is one of the you know er rom coms. It's one of the you know sets the um, the bones of so many uh, movies that we watch today, and we don't know where the influences come from. Well, this movie is very influential on a lot of movie makers. It's actually a very favorite movie of of a number of filmmakers. Martin Scorsese apparently watched it repeatedly while getting ready to make Raging Bull, and I don't know what to make of that. I don't know what to make of that at all. <laughs> it's one of his favorite movies, and he loves this particular director, Michael Powell. You know, I, I think a lot about with this movie, just the pleasure of watching these two characters talk, talk to each other, mm-hmm. and, and that I could have taken even longer scenes of— two people 
getting along and having just being really good companions to each other. Right. You know, that also makes me think of my more recent watch of Notting Hill, where I realized those two people just like walk across a park for like six scenes of that movie, what feels like, where I'm like, oh, they're just kind of talking to each other, which is like, what a beautiful way to show romance where you've got two really smart characters, two very strong characters, mm-hmm. you know, just sort of falling for each other. Well, and why not do it against this incredible backdrop of the Outer Hebrides with these incredible silhouette shots and weather? And um, it's a absolutely gorgeous movie to look at. But I agree. The scenes of the Laird of Killarney and uh, Joan Webster and, and Torquil. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So we have these scenes where Torquil and Joan are just talking to each other. And it might be on a bus with these incredible vistas spread out behind them. Or it might be, you know, on the edge of, of the, uh, the water with the aisles in the distance, you know, lit up by the sun. So, you know, a park is nice. But honestly, this is a little nicer. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, Scotland was one of the last places I got to go before lockdown in that last year. Mm. And there is that that feeling that magic could happen. And, and um, you know, especially when you get close to the water. And I just thought, like, I, I wonder what went into scouting. And, you know, of course, then I started doing a deep dive into where things were actually shot. And there was something I saw online about him not being able to really go. And a lot no. of, yeah, which is like really fascinating to me because, if you can't actually be there the whole time, they did a pretty good job. They shot a lot of exteriors up there, and I think Wendy Hiller was up there. But uh, Roger Livesey was in a play down in London and could not get free. So every time you see him in those locations, you don't see his face. It's mm. it's a stand-in. And the rest of the stuff with him, it was all shot in the studio back uh, outside of London, which is kind of remarkable because you really, it does not feel set-bound. You really feel like you're there. Can you contextualize her character? Because, I, you know, it seems like if this is an influential romantic comedy that is, you know, I wanted to place such a strong-willed, opinionated, fun woman who's sort of grappling with life choices. I, I just wanted to, to get a sense of sort of where you think she falls in, in this world. Well, she's the proud woman and the proud woman who, you know, needs to be humbled, which is its own trope, just the same as the, you know, there's the proud man who needs to be humbled. But in, within the concept of a romantic comedy, I mean, it goes back to Taming of the Shrew and before. And honestly, I don't think Wendy Hiller's character is supposed to be all that likable for much of the movie until, you know, we're pretty much clearly on the side of Torquil and the locals and all those eccentric characters. I mean, honestly, there's one character in this movie named Catriona Potts, uh, who's Torquil's best friend. And apparently in an early draft of the of the screenplay, they had had a romance in the past, and then they cut that out. Although it seems clear that they have a past. And it's played by an actress named Pamela Brown. And the camera loves her in part because Michael Powell was having an affair with her. But she is everything Joan Webster is not, her character. I love the scene where she enters windswept with wolfhounds, um, with her hair all just messy and rain, you know, covered with rain and with eight wolfhounds running around her. And she's extremely in her place and happy and herself in a way that Joan with her fake leopard skin hat and, you know, handbag is not of nature. I I often feel there's a movie about Catriona Potts that I wish I could see. And that's sort of hovering in the background of this movie. But it's up to Wendy Hiller to play this part so that we, even if we're not so sure whether we like her, we want to keep watching her. 
Uh, and I think she pulls that off very well. I find it really interesting. This was my mother's favorite movie, hmm. by the way. Okay. And she would have been 22 when it came out. So think about that. She's roughly the same age as Joan Webster's character. And it came out, well, I think she probably saw it by the time it came to the United States. Probably the war was over. But she talked about that movie a lot. And I also think it has something to do with the fact that she actually looked a little bit like Wendy Hiller. But I think that was a, that what that movie was to her as, you know, when Harry met Sally was to other people. Or, you know, what what is the one single, you know, romantic movie that you hold dear to your heart? Well, that that would probably be the one, even though that I have up and down feelings about it. But um, yep. yeah, I mean, it's the one that I grew up thinking that here's the template. Right, right. And I think my mother was representative of, a, of an audience of young women that were really quite bewitched by this movie and maybe saw a bit of themselves. Uh, I, I think the wartime setting is important because I think a lot of people were making decisions about their life that were practical, that had to be practical. And I think that was true of people in America during the war as well. And this is a movie that is, there's a wonderful uh, line. Let me see if I can find it. That um, That's a story, actually. Let me see if I can find it. Yeah, here it is. So first of all, you need to know that this was really made by two men, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. And they worked together as a team on many, many movies, like 19 movies, called themselves The Archers. And they made The Red Shoes and Black Narcissus and a whole bunch of really classic, classic films. Powell directed, Pressburger produced. They both wrote, really collaborated very tightly on the script. And there's a story that um, that Powell said when they were in this. St- First of all, they, ma- they made this movie because they wanted to make a different movie in Technicolor, but all the Technicolor cameras, they were like, three Technicolor cameras in all of England and they were being used by, for an, you know, an American project. So let's go make something in black and white. And I think it's Pressburger says, oh, I've got this idea about a woman who's stuck on, a, on the mainland and trying to get to an island. And Powell says, well, what's she trying to get to? It says, I don't know, let's write the screenplay and find out. And, and they're writing this during wartime. And Powell says, he said to Pressburger, this is in his autobiography, we've been at war so long that we're beginning to forget fundamental truths. It's time they were restated. Hmm. And Pressburger thinks about it and he says, what are, what are the fundamental truths? And then he says, kindness rules the world, not money. Which I think in, in 1944 and 1945 was something that was worth remembering. Yeah. It's worth remembering today. And they certainly aren't shy about that as like a pillar of the, of this film, you know, right. like that uh, it's later in the film when she has a conversation really just about like, how important is this? How important right. is the money? Right. Well, that, and yeah. 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 The, the movie's got a very interesting and quite complicated attitude toward money. There's that um, classic line that gets quoted a lot and um, we can listen to it where uh, Joan says to Torque, well, after they've met one of the locals, oh, you know, everybody here is quite poor. And he says, they're not poor. They just don't have any money. People around here, are they poor, I suppose? Not poor. They just haven't got money. It's the same thing? Oh, no, something quite different. What a great line. And hearing it, I was like, yeah. oh, this is where it comes from. And, right. you know, just going back for one second, just to him, ha- sure. him having this sort of group, right, of characters around him and, like, the gender piece of it that there's, you know, a woman who may or may not have a certain kind of past with him. And I, I, there is something about that character. And and again, maybe I'm jumping to a weird place, more modern place. Jump, that jump. jump. Well, that reminded me a little bit of, to bring up Hugh Grant again, but <laughs> a Kristen Scott Thomas, Four Weddings and a Funeral, like, I, I've already I've already been there and done this, and I am already a part of this person's world. And 
and sort of I, I loved this character so much as 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 the opposite, right? Of of this heroine and 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 also they're not really in competition in any way. They're just coexisting and having you know a, a hero who is surrounded by real characters, right? And and not all and not all men is just I don't know that 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 was really meaningful to me because because the, the Kristen Scott Thomas character in Four Weddings and a Funeral is very important to me and sort of women who are friends of men in romantic comedies and the role they play and you know I, I love my favorite favorite character in any rom-com because sometimes it's so two-dimensional and sometimes it's not is the the female friend you know and and I always think of you know I I want to become Gwyneth Paltrow's friend in Sliding (laughs) Doors where like I don't know a thing about her all I know is she seems Uh to own property and she's like alone doing leg lifts sometimes but like she just shows up when she's needed and has no interior life as far as I know but like that's cool but like in this case it's not that it's it's um like, you know, th- these are people who are part of his community and, and they like build out his character. Yeah, nice. The movie also surrounds not just with with um, friends, but an entire village, um, an entire community. And I think you get that. Uh, and that great scene in the bus where they're traveling in the bus uh, with um, the hunters and all these other local people. And the, and the locals start dumping on uh, the guy she's going to marry, mm-hmm. you know, and, and making fun of him. He's, you know, he's got all the, the latest fishing gear from London or wherever, and uh, but he doesn't. But the fish don't know it. And she's sitting there taking that in. What did you think of one of the things about Powell's movies in particular is that they're always, and this is very surprising for a British filmmaker or seems to be surprising. They're always kind of drifting into fantasy, drifting into sort of magical other worlds. Um, And I'm thinking of that dream sequence on the train, which is where... Joan, in her dreams, believes she's marrying not the man, but the the chemical company that he runs. Oh, I, okay, this is really, I went straight to Fiddler on the Roof. (laughs) Why? (laughs) It's like this night, because there's that nightmare scene. It's one of the songs is like a nightmare. Musical theater geeks Mm -hmm. will be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it is, you know, only in the sense of... I, I love that scene and I love these elements of, you know, a, a possible curse mm-hmm. and a this and a that, you know, it's, um, but yeah, I, I think it, in a place that at least for this American in Boston seems magical to begin with, right? Because it's so otherworldly in terms of the way I live. Like it felt very, like the whole thing might be imaginary, mm-hmm. right? Like this whole thing might be a dream that she's stuck in this place and can't get where she needs to be. And and I like that feeling of, of is this real? And and that, that what a great scene. And funny scene. Yes. I, I adored that scene because, you know, what, what it, you know, and, and such an interesting thing because the last time you and I spoke, we were talking to some extent about like rom-com as wealth porn, yeah. you know, as, you know, sort of girl gets rescued from humbleness and gets to, have fancy things, right? And this is so the antithesis right. of that, which is like you're escaping that sort of materialistic nonsense world. Well, you know, it all has to do with the period it's it's made in. I was looking with my students recently at um, two scenes that are basically about the same thing, a man taking a woman to a dress shop and buying her clothes. And one of them is from Pretty Women and one of them is from Vertigo. Yikes. It's literally the same scene. The same thing is happening. He is buying her clothes. And one is an absolute celebration of glamour and fashion and consumption. And the other one is is complete gaslighting and manipulation and creepy as hell. It's really interesting to look at the same plot turns in 
different eras because you they you just you see what the values of that era are. Yeah. You know, and you look at a rom-com from the 80s or the early 90s and it is about, you know, uh consumption porn. It is about, you know, pretty things, having pretty things. And this movie, I know where I'm going is kind of the opposite. It's about giving away the pretty things. Right, and living simply and and lo- pure love, true love, not having anything to do with that <laughs> stuff whereas like, you know, take that Richard Gere. <laughs> <laughs> Um, do you know what one of my favorite scenes in the movie is? Is the Kaylee. Okay. The, uh, yeah. The, the, you know, the, the, where they gather to celebrate the the wedding anniversary of this old couple. Mm-hmm. And they're playing music. And, oh, my God, the faces. They have these close-ups of the, the locals. That, and Powell particularly picked out specific faces that just told stories. And off in the corner are Torquil and Joan. And he's, she's standing on a ladder above him. And they're kind of taking it all in. And they're falling in love, but she is not having it or trying really hard not to have it. And you see all the permutations of romance in that. There's the older couple that's been married for, you know, 65 years or however long. There's the young couple where the the guy's jealous that his girlfriend's being wooed by a soldier, but she says, I really love you. And you just see all these variations as the main couple kind of stands back and watches them play out with all this incredible music going on. By the way, it's a real Kaylee. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, it feels totally authentic. And it's it's just such a, I don't know, like, it's just like, at that point, I, love in all stages and also you know what you want so much. And 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 you're, I hadn't really thought about who they choose to focus on and how and how much it says without saying. Mm-hmm. I've seen this movie about, I don't know, 10 times over the course of my life. This, this is a movie I could see seeing many, many times. And I don't feel that way about all romantic movies, obviously. But mm-hmm. this one, even, you know, going through it twice, it was like, this is definitely something I'm sure where you pick up the tiniest details. Right. I, I'm going to be curious about your opinion on this. So do you know who was almost cast as Torquil? Ooh, no, tell me. James Mason. Okay, tell me. Tell me. James Mason. Okay. You don't know James yeah, Mason? Yeah, well, no, James, yeah. okay. So- Have you seen James, have you seen young James Mason? A yeah, Star is but, Born? Yeah, like Judy Garland, Star is Born? Or, or very young- What I'm trying to decide is like, how young would he have been? Like, that's what I'm trying to place. Uh, you know, let me look that up. Um, I will tell you. He was, he was young and- I think this is better. I kind of mourn what this might have been with, uh, with James Mason. You do? I, yeah, I do. Because he has an intensity- I feel free, anybody, everybody in the world to disagree with me on this. I love Roger Livesey. I think he's great. He is very British. He's very, or not British, he's Scottish in the film, but he's very, I don't get a lot of eroticism from him. <sighs> Young James Mason, who would have been 34, I think, when this, uh, yeah, he would have been 34. He had, would have had a potency, I think, that would have, he would have had a smolder that yeah. I think would have changed the dynamic of the film, maybe for the worse. I think it would have been a lot. Of, I think you're right. It would have been a lot sexier, but I also think that there was something actually quite believable about this in True. a way that it wouldn't have. Like right off the bat, I wasn't necessarily sure what I thought or what I. You know what I mean? It's a little. It's more subtle. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Which normally you don't really get. Well, if, for the longest time, you don't know who he. She doesn't know who he is. There is a scene where he finally says, and you know, we can listen to the audio where he says, "Oh, oh by the way." I'm the Laird of Killarney. Yeah. I'd better introduce myself. I am McNeil of Killorn. And I am the Laird of Killorn. So Robert Bellinger has only rented it for the duration. I see. 
Yeah, and that's it's a nice little reveal, especially if you're going into the movie cold, which apparently, if you're listening to this, I just spoiled it for you. But the story with James Mason, it was that they really wanted him, but he was being kind of a, a baby about it. He didn't want to go to the middle of nowhere and shoot a film. He wanted first-class accommodations. And he was just being kind of a spoiled about it, and they finally just said, forget it. So uh, I think they actually might have cast him, and then Powell said, yeah, no, we'll go with somebody else. And he went, he'd worked with Roger Livesey before. There's a really marvelous, very British movie that Powell and Pressburger did called The um, the Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. Um, it's this three-hour sort of epic story about a British soldier from his youth to his old age. And it's quite, it's quite lovely. And Livesey had played the lead in that, so they had worked very closely together. And I think as almost... Not as a favor, but he was there. He was a known quantity. I mean, I I see what you're saying, and I always love a smolder, but there was something about, <laughs> like, it almost feels like she falls for him without him pursuing and smoldering all over her. You know, where she she falls for him, she falls for the life, she falls for all of these things, and he's going to be okay either way. Like, kind of, like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's sort of the vibe he gives off to me, is, like, very sh- sure of himself in a particular way, partly because of the values. Right. So I don't know if that would have been as clear with like someone who was more heartthrobby in a particular way. Huh. Like, I, huh. I don't know if I would have been distracted. Would have turned it more into Wuthering Heights or something. Exactly, you know? exactly. Where yeah. like, I, you know, I'm picturing again, the waves crashing again. You know, it's a different vibe where this felt <laughs> almost playful um, at moments that was, that, that felt, I mean, it's old, but very new to me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, playful, but also wild. I mean, there's a real sense of wildness to the movie. And I'm thinking about Corey Vrecken, the whirlpool, uh, which uh. which exists. That's a real place. Um, and it's also in the movie, it's like symbolic of her just going down, you know, giving in. Yeah. Just giving in and going over the edge. And that's it. Goodbye. You've lost your heart, which, of course, she does. But it is, um, yeah, just reading about how they filmed that sequence is pretty amazing as well. But there's danger to it. There's danger out there. Um, and in fact, she endangers some of the characters in the course of the film. She does. She and, and yeah, she's a pill. She really is. She's like, I, I am compartmentalizing my feelings and therefore everyone must risk their lives. <laughs> I mean, really, who right. who amongst us has not, you know? <laughs> <laughs> what, tried to hoodoo the locals and taking you across, you know? Yes. Piloting across a roaring whirlpool. The the world's largest metaphor. Yeah, exactly. We need to yeah. do this, right? right. As, as Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that's a, such a great... There's so many just really standout scenes and, and um, yeah. just visually so intense. Yeah. And, you know, I think nowadays, because, you know, I, I can't contextualize the budget of, of a film from this long ago, but when a rom-com is made, and, and I know I've talked about this before, only now are we getting back into some high-budget ones, but generally they're smaller movies now. So the idea of this, right. this a romance sort of taking place on a scale this large with weather and setting, and it, it, it's, it's like a treat. And that's well shot, or like artistically shot. Beautifully shot. Yeah, gorgeously shot. The cinematographer was Erwin Hillier, who apparently hated a clear sky. <laughs> Wouldn't shoot if there was a clear sky. Had to be, you know, not... Cl- completely cloud covered, but he wanted body in the sky. And in fact, if you look at the film, I mean, there's just like gorgeous skies. Yeah. The sea and the sky. You believe no one's going anywhere. Like, so which is perfect. Right. Now, the the sea and the sky are characters in in the movie. 
everything's a character. The, the guy with the eagle is a character. Mm. The eagle's a character. I mean, they um, there's this old army colonel who's training a golden eagle. And in fact, that guy was not an actor. He was really an old army colonel who went around, you know, showing off his 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 birds of prey. So, I mean, and again, that's such a Michael Powell touch. Bring in just like a totally random British eccentric to just class up your movie. Yeah, but this is one, this is one I'll probably watch a few more times. Good, good. Well, it's a movie I recommend a lot. And I've never had an, actually, no, I had one person come back and say, uh, I was, you know, too pip-pip, tally-ho, and just couldn't get over the Britishness of it. And I thought, okay, fine, you're lost. Well, I, you know, I think I might have had that feeling for the first five minutes and then it, then I was in. I mean, again, right. I think if you give into it, you're, you're totally immersed in it and, and you're there. Although that opening, remember the opening sequence with the narration that's kind of selling you, that gives you this, this woman's life from birth to childhood to adolescence and says, you know, she's always known where she's going, you know, interspersed with the credits popping up on like, you know, moving vans and in windows. And it's just such a wonderfully creative opening. Well, and it's like, what a great way to have all this exposition of character where I'm like, okay, now I can just start. I, it, right. You know, I thought it's a screenwriter must watch that and say, wait, am I allowed to do that? <laughs> am I allowed to just there was- <laughs> tell you exactly who she is and you believe me? <laughs> well, yes, of course you're allowed to do that. And, it, and it's sort of like creatively obvious exposition yeah. where we're going to do it, but we're going to have fun doing it. And apparently there's a story about Pressburger going to Hollywood and, and meeting with a bunch of screenwriters at one of the studios. And they said, whenever we get stuck, we watch I Know Where I'm Going. And we've watched it like 10 times because it just gives us ideas of how to do things. Wow. So again, literally the DNA of this movie is going straight into Hollywood movies and percolating to our present day. And it is, it's it's, it's a charming beginning. Like, I hope it doesn't turn anybody off. I was like, when I started watching it, I was like, yeah. <laughs> Somebody once suggested to Scorsese that he should remake it, and he said he wouldn't touch it. And I can't imagine anybody... Well, I mean, you could remake the story, and it wouldn't be the same film. Yeah, I can't imagine... I mean, listen, I can't imagine a lot of remakes that are made, you know, and they happen. But this seems... Because it seems to be like there's a lot of stuff you could do now with special effects. It just wouldn't, yes. it wouldn't be what it is. And and I think that the films that are made now that make use of scene, of natural scenery in that way feel like they're attempting to be a throwback to this, perhaps. Right. You know, so, yes. why, so why do it, you know? Right. Yeah. And I think one of the things that makes the movie special is its very specific sensibility, which is kind of perched on the edge between the real world and, and almost like fairyland. Yes. Um, you know, they some, something and you could do that and you could, you know, they would, God, Peter Jackson would ruin it. He'd bring out all the special effects and the digital effects. And I hope nobody does remake it. I hope they just leave it as it is. Yes. I, ca- I, ugh, I can't imagine. But then again, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't think I'd be at a West Side Story remake so many years later. So you never know. <laughs> and that was, that turned out well. And I loved it. Um, have you, yeah. <laughs> Have you seen any other of uh, Powell's Powell and Pressburger's films? I, if I the have, I would. Um, some of the ones you mentioned, I was like, oh, this might have happened like, or in or like around my person without my actively choosing it through parents and that kind of thing. There's a movie called um, A Matter of Life and Death, otherwise known as Stairway to Heaven, which is also kind of one of the original magic rom coms. Well, then then you know, with, with David David Niven as a wartime aviator, is made during the war, who dies. 
and goes up to heaven, but they decide he's not, he's not, there's been a mistake made. And there's a woman down on earth that he's got to get together with. So it's one of those heaven can wait movies, but pretty early on. Well, that is very much my style. So that goes on the I list. I recommend you, that one highly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then if you're feeling perverse, you should check out Black Narcissus, okay. um, which is about a group of British nuns in the Himalayas who are basically going crazy from repressed eroticism. Also, yes, you heard that right. Also yeah. sounds like something very good to put on my list. <laughs> um, and there's one, one of the, uh, there's one of the nuns played by an actress named Kathleen Byron who goes just splendidly around the bend in almost horror movie ways that you will never forget. And so I recommend that one as well. Okay. Okay, yeah. this is good. We should have a watch party. We should have a watch party. Yeah. And I highly recommend to everyone to watch this and then watch The Lighthouse and then just have like a bunch of really <laughs> weird emotions. <laughs> the double pill of I know where I'm going and The Lighthouse. Oh my God. I feel strongly about it. Like I feel like it could be the world's weirdest night. All right. Well, with that, I think we will uh, move on. And this has been Ty Burr from Ty Burr's Watchlist and Meredith Goldstein of the Boston Globe talking about our favorite romantic comedies. We will be back in a week or two uh, talking about one of the magic rom-coms that we kind of cherish because they're so crazy. And that one is The Time Traveler's Wife. So come back for that one. Thanks very much for listening. That's all for today. This has been Tiber's Watchcast, an audio companion to the Substack movie newsletter, Tiber's Watchlist. If you'd like more pop culture commentary and a guide to good movies in theaters and on demand, please feel free to check out my newsletter at tiberswatchlist.substack.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Hold up. 